We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 15 today. And uh, this is the same uh, parallel text is in Mark chapter 7, but we're going to be looking at Matthew. I wish I could just squeeze them both together because they each have facets that are remarkable. And I'm going to try to do that, but we'll be following Matthew 15. Matthew 15 and Mark 7 is on the onset when I first... Uh, begin to get into the Bible. This is how I know when people are reading the Bible is because they will start asking you questions. When people aren't asking questions and are very comfortable with their God, they're not reading their Bible. Because the Bible has some stuff in it that really can rub you the wrong way. And many times, especially in American culture, we can have this American middle class kind of uh, uh, mindset of American evangelicalism that, and we presuppose our culture and what's comfortable onto Jesus and we create this image that is Jesus. But then when we begin to read the Bible, and this is what I love about the Bible, is it always challenges my preconceived notions of who God is and who I think Him to be. And when I read the Bible, I end up finding out that God's a lot different than what I thought he was. Remember when I first got saved, the first thing I did is said, I'm going to read my Bible every single year of my life. And so I did that. And you know, when I approached the Bible, I thought I was going to have more answers. (laughs) Now I find myself having more questions. Because there's layers of things that build up over time. And when you take people's words for it for so long, you end up finding out that they didn't always get it right. That God is this untamed, loving being that can't be just put in some kind of neat little package and box, but that He's God. He's altogether lovely, but He's altogether holy. And when we talk about holiness, we automatically think about uh, staying away from sin. That's an aspect of holiness, but that's more righteousness. Holiness is, has more to do with a uniqueness. So when any time we see God mentioned, and, and a repetition is a theme that's used throughout the Scriptures, when, when God's mentioned and when Isaiah gets this vision, he says, holy, holy, holy are what these seraphim sing day and night. That in this threefold holy, they're declaring a uniqueness about God. That God is sinless and that He is perfect. But His holiness has more to do with I'm the only uncreated being that has ever existed before anything was. I am, so there's nothing like God. And see, we have a Western mindset. This Western mindset's been inherited from Greek philosophy, and the Greeks had an adversarial mindset. And so they had uh, opposites. They didn't really understand paradoxes and didn't really follow that train of thought. So I could say something like this, and you give me the opposite. Love. Rich. Right? God. See, you're all messed up. You think Satan is just as powerful as God. Satan is a created being. So when I say God, you can't say Satan. 
you have to say, holy. Holy. You have to say holy. And someone tell me one time, what's, what's more holy? A weenie dog or an angel? It's got to be an angel. No, they're both created. There's only one holy. And that's God. But God's the only uncreated. And that's why I love the Bible. And when I read Jesus... You know, in American mindsets, we get this idea that Jesus was kind of this hippie, right? He's got long hair and sandals, and he's patting kids on the head, and he's, he's got a guitar, and he lays in a field of daisies and sings songs, beautiful love songs. But when I read the Bible, Jesus spends most of his time getting into trouble. That there's an element of Jesus that turns over tables at times. That there's something about Jesus that's so unique that it can only be described by just saying, this is just Jesus. But as cool as and awesome as Jesus is, in our text today, the strangest thing happens. A lady who's got no history with God who comes from a pagan nation, one-ups Jesus. One-ups him. If this text is so peculiar and so strange, and from the outset you could read it and say, oh man, this seems so harsh, but then after you begin to understand it, there's something rich. And what I've found is, is that the text that you're having trouble with if you'll research it out, you'll always find out that God is better than you thought him to be. Every single time. So any text that you're battling with, search it out. And when you come out on the other side, you'll find that God is better than what you even thought him to be. So the way the cookies crumbled. How many of you know some cookies need to crumble? We've been nursing on some cookies for too long. And it'll be a godsend when they do finally Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now at this time, Jesus and his companions are traveling near the borders of Tyre and Sidon. They've not crossed over. They're still within the limits of Israel and Galilee. But what had happened was is that his miracles and his teaching and his fame began to spread. And so it leaked out into the Gentile areas around Galilee and in a the presence and his fame attracted and reached this Gentile woman and this certain mother particular's attention. Uh, verse 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman, Mark 7 says a Syrophoenician. Uh, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So verse 22 here has a unique clue. It says Canaanite, or in Mark 7, Syrophoenician. 
uh, these were many of the people that were uh, uh, composed in this area would have been survivors that the Israelites had drove northward when they entered into the land. Because when they entered into Canaan, they had to drive out the Canaanites. So it's remarkable that this woman is crossing the bridge, even though this is hundreds of years later, but she's crossing the bridge in back into Israel to find some kind of help for her daughter. The Phoenicians were some of the most morally despised of all of Israel's enemies in the New Testament. That when we hear about the Syrophoenicians, the most famous one in the Bible is Jezebel. So we've got the Old Testament reality of Jezebel and what that meant. And here comes this Gentile pagan barging into a Jewish home to have an encounter with Jesus. The Phoenicians were living in the republics of Tyre and Sidon, and they were considered themselves thoroughly Greek when Alexander the Great had conquered uh, the known world at the time. They had accepted the Greek culture, and so they had fully embraced their mythology and their worldview. So this woman was a heathen, but not only a heathen, she's a woman. And in first century Judaism, a woman was like property. We'll be bought and sold. For a few goats, you could get a good bride. And when it come time to sit around the table, the women had to go. We're talking God's stuff. You need to go. Well, Jesus changes this dynamic altogether. But think about this stranger coming into this land. She's of a different race. She's of a different religion. She's a woman in an oppressive culture. And she busts the door down. And falls at Jesus' feet and says, My daughter is demon-possessed. Most of us white folk, we don't know what it is to walk in and be different in a place. We don't know what it is to be different. But I want to tell you something. It's all right to be different here. You're welcome here, brother. Miss Gwen, you're welcome here. Some of us need to get out of our white middle class uppity selves and start realizing that the kingdom of God is bigger than our little American mindsets want to admit. That King Jesus is encompassing a much bigger territory than our little coastlines and our little shores and our little whatevers. Jesus is doing something. So when anybody sticks their head in here that looks different, we better love them. We better let them know that Jesus loves them. This woman, who's got no framework of God, calls him the son of David. What? Where did you get that? Son of David? That's a Jewish appellation. That's a Jewish name. That's for us Jews. This is what we call our Messiah. And now you've busted in, and you're using our names 
talk to our rabbi? See, she sees something much further, and I don't know, maybe God give her a vision or a dream. I don't know how she come to this understanding, but she calls him son of David. But David never reigned over her people. So she's got this insight to know that she's not calling out to Israel's Messiah. She's calling out to her Messiah. See, she passed the point of someone else's God and entered into the realm of my God. And it's nice to have a history. Some of you have been living off of grandma's stories too long and you ain't got no stories of your own. Grandma tells you about the good old days and you're convinced that that's the best days that there ever was. And you're, you're content with grandma's Messiah. But there comes a time where you've got to say, Oh, son of David. <laughs> son of David! Come into my heart and change my life. It gets worse. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And get this. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So here's this lady. She's begging for a miracle for her daughter. And if you've got kids, you know that their misery is your misery. I've even heard parents say, Oh, let this happen to me and not my own kids. And she comes in, makes a fool of herself, falls at his feet, crying out for some kind of relief, knowing that he has the power to do so. But the Bible says he doesn't answer her a word. And the disciples see Jesus' silence and interpret it as God not wanting to have anything to do with her. So we have God silent and the church saying, you need to go. Let me tell you something. If God's silent, then don't you be speaking to people what they ought to be doing. Because you could be running somebody off when the king of kings is just taking a moment to draw something out of somebody where the faith has to be on display and they need to see, they need a revelation of what's going on. And so if God isn't speaking, don't be quick to speak and run somebody off here. You're a parent, you know that a child's suffering is a parent's trial as well. But Jesus apparently appears to, to ignore the desperate cries of this mother. So she's traveled far to see him. She's overcome obstacles. She's being rejected by the disciples. They're saying, would you get out of here already and, and leave us alone? Uh, yet when she finally sees him, her cries seem to fall on deaf ears. The Bible says that he answered her not a word. I want to ask you a question. What do you do when God is silent? Do you wait? Or do you get in the flesh and try to figure some bill out and make a big mess? Let me tell you something. When God's not saying anything, don't do nothing. Other than keep seeking Him and serving Him with everything that's within you. We're always looking for a new revelation. Well, maybe God wants to take a time and put you in the wilderness where there's a transformation that would take place. 
and doesn't want to give you a new word because you hadn't been obedient to the 100 other words he gave you before that moment. People want the victory on their job, but they don't pay their tithes. People want victory in their body, but they won't eat right. There's just... It's more complex than we try to paint it sometimes. So what do you do when God seems silent? We know from the text as we read on that God's silence didn't discourage her. As a matter of fact, it revealed more perseverance within her. So God is being silent so that her faith can be put on display. And the church interprets it as God doesn't care because why is this happening? She must go. No. God hadn't said nothing yet. But everybody's speculating through the silence what Jesus ought to be saying. So Jesus is silent. His followers have rejected her. He seems to be too busy or too preoccupied to even deal with her issue. And the thing is, it's not like Jesus couldn't do anything about it. He had all the power in the world right there in that moment. And the disciples, too, if we remember, I think it's Matthew chapter 10, they had already been sent out and saw all kinds of demons get casted out and all kinds of healings take place. So they could have done something about it. So the disciples aren't doing anything about it. Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned about it. And watch this person, this woman's response. Verse 24, he answered. Okay, now God speaks. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So after she cries after him, after he seems to ignore her, after the disciples asked that she had been sent away, Jesus finally speaks. Yet when he speaks, it sounds more like a rebuke than a blessing. I'm after the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is saying in a sense, nope, sorry. Your race, your religion, it's not time yet. There's a work over here I've got to do. It's not time for your things to be answered. Basically, you've got no covenantal rights here. I'm sent to Jews and not Gentiles. Now watch what Jesus, watch what this lady does. Verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Notice she's changed her word from son of David to now she's addressing him as Lord. She's pushing past the Jewish expectations of a Messiah and she's entering into the global cosmological Jesus that redeems the entire world. She falls at his feet and worships him. And cries out. Think of the audacity of the woman. It's like, it's like she knows Jesus' heart past his words. And that can happen. That can happen. Remember Abraham when he's asked to offer his son on the altar? He 
knew his son wasn't going to die. And even if he did, God would raise him from the dead because God's not a man that he should lie and that whatever he promises, he does. So he knew God passed his command to offer his son on an altar. And this woman here, a Gentile with no background of faith, seems to understand that she knows God's heart better than his response to her in that moment. And that's why we've got to be careful interpreting everything by a response or, or even the prophetic. We've got to be careful sometimes because there's a moment that we've got to know it, that we know that we know the character of God. That way we can be secure when we get the word of God, even when it sounds contrary to the nature of God. Jesus is wanting to draw out the depth of her request so the Jews can see the faith of an unlikely Gentile. So Jesus isn't denying her. He's drawing something out of her so that the church could see what real faith looked like. Verse 26, and he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, this keeps getting piled higher and higher here. <laughs> There's a part of me that says, Jesus, cut this lady a break and just do it, right? It's like my wife was trying to put these nasal drops in my child's nose last night. And I finally just shut it down. I was like, stop the fighting and the flailing and just leave her alone. My wife says, if I don't do this, she won't get any better. I said, continue the flailing, I guess. <laughs> the crying. So now this woman's not only rejected, being given the silent treatment, it seems like now she's being called a dog. Now a dog was one of the gravest insults in antiquity. But the word of dog here that Jesus uses in the Greek isn't the same word of dog used in other places. The word in the Greek that's used in a negative sense is kuon. And that would be used when Peter uses Proverbs and he says, like a dog returns to his vomit, so is a person that returns to his sin. Or like when Lazarus and the rich man in that parable, when it says the dog licked his sores as he was waiting to die. The Jewish mindset saw dogs as scavengers. But Jesus uses a different word here. He uses the word Kunarion, which means a little dog, a house pet. And in Gentile houses, people of dignity had dogs in their house and considered them pets. It was a status symbol, kind of like the chihuahua in a purse or whatever. That Y'all remember that? So Jesus is getting on her level and saying, you know how the Gentile house works. You don't take what you're giving to the kids. You give dog food, do you give dogs dog food, and you give kids bread. You Jesus is indicating there's an order here that, that takes place. That I don't give the dogs bread first. I've got to give these kids bread right now. But this lady has this remarkable insight. This remarkable insight that sees past even the Hals Geshekta, 
The salvation history of God. That was from German for you. She understands even past the dispensation of time she's in now and is looking forward to the time when God's going to do something great. See, there's sometimes in your life where what's really supposed to happen is on down the line a little ways. But God wants you to get a glimpse of that in the here and now and sometimes step into that to take a dab and bring back into the present reality. It's like the Bible says that God has given you the Spirit of God as a foretaste for the glory to come. You're getting a little taste, but you've got to understand that there's an open heaven and there's a glory coming. So every once in a while, you need to step into the open heaven. Every once in a while, you need to get over here where you understand the good things of God are on their way and pull those things from the future and apply them by faith into your current Circumstance. That's what this lady's doing. Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord, but don't even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from the master's table? <laughs> said, Jesus, don't tell me about a Gentile home. I is one. And in a Gentile home, guess what the dogs do? They get under the table and they hope something falls. <laughs> and the dog's not ashamed to beg. They'll sit in a position and they'll keep waiting. You can even fool them and never give them nothing and they never lose the ability to stop coming and stop begging and stop sniffing and stop pulling on your pant leg and stop searching and searching until finally they know there's going to come a point to where the master's going to get wore out. He's going to get tired of denying me and he's going to begin to give crumbs from his table and those crumbs are enough. Those crumbs are enough. She understood that in Genesis twelve thirteen that God tells Abraham that through you all nations will be blessed. She's like, hurry up, Jesus. God was saying this back in Genesis. It's almost like she's saying, Jesus, it might be true that you weren't sent to look for me right now. But the same is true that I came looking for you. And there might be times where it feels like Jesus isn't looking for you. But sometimes you need to get off your high horse and you need to go seek him out. Because the veil has been rent. The Spirit of God is everywhere. He's as close as the mention of his name. And you're wanting some miraculous sign to to shake the heavens and to get you back on track when really you just need to get along with God, turn off the TV, get in a room and just say, God, I want to hear your voice again. God, I don't feel as close to you as I used to. There's a seeking on our part that is just as powerful as the seeking of God's heart. Verse 28, Then Jesus answered her, Woman, oh great... Oh, woman, great is your faith. She's impressed God. That's pretty good. I think God's more like Peter with me, like, oh, my 
gosh. Oh, my me, I guess, or whatever he would say. Then Jesus answered, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And he said to her, get this, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. For this statement. Jesus spends his whole ministry condemning false religious works. Would you agree? Say, Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. Inside's dead bones, but you look really good on the outside. Uh, The cup on the outside is clean, but the inside of the cup's dirty. The inside of the cup matters outside. You're tripping about me washing my hands, but your cup's really dirty on the inside. I mean, he's spending all his time doing this. And then this work, he praises. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. This passage is it's almost, it's almost comedic or, or cartoonish in a way. It's, it's so unexpected. It's like this Gentile pagan, mother of a demon-possessed daughter, is the only one in the Bible that I've ever seen that matches wits with Jesus and wins. It's unbelievable. And it's true as you read the Gospels that Jesus is only ever amazed or marveled at two things, faith and unbelief. He's like, he can't believe when people can't believe, and then he can't believe when people believe. It's really strange. These two things seem to be uh, things that you and I can, can do as human beings, and we can surprise God. There's sometimes where God's probably like, whoa, great faith. And then there's probably other times he's like, really? After all I've done, this is where we're at? There's, there's, but we see here that Stories like this show us that faith is the key that unlocks the door to receiving all the benefits of the kingdom of God. This unnamed woman came to Jesus out of her desperation over 2,000 years ago, and now we're still talking about it in a completely different context, in a completely different culture, 2,000 and something years later. Your life matters. Your faith counts. In an eternity... Jesus might be teaching your story of faith to help others. We know from the end of the passage that Jesus commends her faith. And finally, after this argument, back and forth, her faith persisted, and the Lord says to her, Great is your faith. And the scriptures say that her daughter was made whole from that hour. Isn't that amazing? That God, just a breadcrumb from the master's table, the power and the glory of it can do. I mean, just get a grasp of that. Crumb. Get a grasp of that, man. That's that much. That much. See, let me get that hand out. You believe it? That much? May get some of these breadcrumbs here. You believe it? I mean, 
and get it in your hair, they'll think you got dandruff because no better you use head and shoulders. So. I mean, this is just, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And just that much, that much, what God can do. All right, I'm going to throw this out on everybody. Tell the Wayne I'm sorry. The bread comes. But you know, I learned something in Bible college. Praise God. <laughs> that whenever you take a text, you're always to push it back through the cross and the resurrection and look at it from the other side and see what it means today. So that's neat what happened to that lady, but if we fast forward past the cross and the resurrection and on into Pentecost, we found out the reality changed. See, I think some of our problem has been like this lady. We've come to God expecting breadcrumbs. We've come to God expecting breadcrumbs and we're okay with a little forgiveness here and there a little presence here and there just to you know get me through my little tough time at work and then once I get my life back under control I'll just go back to taking the reins from Jesus Jesus take the wheel but not too long that we're like this lady and we still feel like we're at the feet of Jesus and the best we could get is a crumb that might roll down his lap and happen to hit the ground But in Acts chapter 2, something crazy happens. <laughs> this event called Pentecost, where Jesus raises from the dead, teaches for 40 days, and says, Terry in the city, I'm going to do something. And you can't even go out and witness to anybody until I do this thing that I want to do. I've got to send the Holy Spirit. And something peculiar about the Feast of Pentecost it was called the Shavuot, the feast where they would celebrate that all the wheat has been gathered together. And they would celebrate Pentecost with a feast of bread. And when the Spirit of God came, people began to speak in languages these Galilean sojourners start speaking a foreign language they don't know and start preaching the gospel in this language. Everybody would come to Jerusalem during the festival months, and so this was a time when people that didn't even know Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever would have been coming in and had some, maybe some Jewish lineage or something, and they were coming to see what all the fuss was about and to make their pilgrimage. And suddenly they see these Galileans begin to speak in other languages, and they say, wait a second, that's my dialect. And they're giving glory to God and preaching the gospel in a language that they don't know. That God was saying, no longer are you on the outside looking in because of your race or your religion. 
that by the blood of Jesus, the middle wall of separation that man had invented anyway has begun to be torn down by the blood of Jesus. And now we've come together, Jew and Gentile, and God's doing a new thing in the earth to where nobody's on the outside. And we can all come in at the table as children. So he says in a sense that this Pentecost, this meant that all the wheat was in, it was time to eat. So they might have been eating crumbs before that. But once the harvest come in, there's no more crumbs. We sit down and celebrate the goodness of God. We celebrate what God is doing in the earth and how he's been faithful to provide. So the Spirit of God something that God had up his sleeve the whole time. See, some of us have been living our lives as a beggar. Maybe if I can get just this euphoric feeling and then be... And God's like our therapy session instead of our God. Now, he is the mighty counselor. He's also the king of kings. This lady comes in and experiences God, yes. But on this side of history, we're not begging for crumbs. And Jesus isn't denying us bread until we do enough faith hoops and exercises to then bring in the reality. He's kind of saying, I did the work and it's table set. You just got to come sit down and eat. Like the man that went to a buffet for the first time and he sat there with an empty plate, mad and upset. Been here an hour and nobody's brought any food out. Said, brother, there's a long-handled spoon. You, You go and get what you want because the cooking and work's already been done. You just gotta fill up your plate. See, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and they were of one mind and one accord, and the sound of a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. They start asking questions. These guys got to be drunk. And a lady asked me one time, why do you come up here and pace during the whole time during worship? I said, I really don't know. I just want to pace and talk to God. <laughs> I'm not drunk as you suppose. <laughs> How come they don't think the church is drunk anymore? Church looks like they took a shot of lemon juice. Yeah, you're sanctified, but not with joy and the Holy Ghost and righteousness and peace and kindness and meekness and gentleness and temperance. And Yeah, you don't watch rated R movies, but my goodness. You ain't smiled since the 1980s. Hadn't been in the altar since the 90s. This is what Peter answers the response of the drunkenness. 
Acts 2, 16 through 18. But this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. <laughs> and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. And even on my male and female servants, the slave class, I will pour out my spirit and they're going to prophesy too. See, Peter is reiterating the promise that Joel said that says nobody's going to be left out. Young, old, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, whatever it might be, that the Spirit's going to be poured out on everybody. All flesh. All flesh. So if this is the case, and we believe in Pentecost... The day that celebrates God's blessings and bountiful harvest, yet we're still settling for crumbs of God. And actually, the crumbs fill us up because our appetite is so small. See, so you want to know something? God's Pentecost was for you. That's why in Numbers chapter 11, Joshua comes to Moses complaining. The elders are prophesying, Moses, that's your job. Moses says, I wish that all Israel could get a word from God. That's why Isaiah 32, God tells the people to put on sackcloth and beat their breasts seeking God until the Spirit from on high is poured out upon us. It's why in Isaiah 44, He promises, I will pour water on the thirsty lands and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. It's why in Zechariah chapter 6, He sees the Spirit and He, he sees in the Spirit four horses that represent God's Spirit and He says that they are eager to go out into the earth. That's why John the Baptist, the last prophet under the Old Covenant, is baptizing with water and says, but there's one coming that's going to baptize with the fire of God and with the Holy Ghost. It's why he goes on to say in John 3.30 that he must increase and I must decrease. And he who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets this seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Get this, for he gives the Spirit without measure. People have been speaking a double portion blessing over you. Say, that's not true. New Testament reality. God gives the Spirit with no measure. To double something would mean it's measurable. This can't be measured, what God wants to do. John 6 tells us that Jesus is the bread of life. And He doesn't give you part of Himself, but all of Himself. What I'm saying is that Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit, the indwelling, empowering, overflowing out of your life has always been God's will for you from the foundations of the earth. So when Peter says, this is that, this is what he's saying. 
He's saying, this is the spirit that breathed, that God breathed into Adam's nostrils. This is the spirit that formed a glory cloud over the nation of Israel. This is the spirit that gave Moses a vision of the glory of God. This is the spirit that resided in the holy of holies. This is the spirit that revived that valley of dry bones. I wish somebody would get revived. This spirit is that spirit that Isaiah promised. This spirit is that spirit that Joel said would be poured out on all flesh. This spirit is that spirit that breaks the yoke of bondage of addiction, of depression, of anxiety, of fear. This spirit is that spirit that enables me to speak in an unknown tongue. This spirit is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and also quickens my mortal body. This spirit is the spirit that gave me the new birth and the new life. This spirit is that spirit that healed my body. This spirit is that spirit that makes me shout. I want to run the aisles. That this is that. Now, it's true that we still come in humility. But as we come in humility, we better know what we really got. Because if you don't know what you got, you won't give it out. People say, well, 98% of the church doesn't tell nobody about the Lord. Well, they don't know what they got. Instead of crumbs... Heads up, Bob. <laughs> and instead of crumbs, God ain't throwing out crumbs anymore. With some Gentiles. Here go, Kurt. God ain't throwing out crumbs anymore to some Gentiles. Better look out, Becky. God ain't throwing. Y'all been to Lambert's? This is Lambert's. Hot Springs. God ain't throwing out crumbs anymore. God's throwing out the good stuff. God ain't giving out crumbs anymore. And you've been expecting too little. Here, I'm just going to deliver this one. You've been expecting too little from God. And you thought He's just enduring you, that He's just putting up with you, that He really don't love you that much, that you're just here just to eke out at some kind of existence and then, uh, you know, figure things out along the way. When God said there's not one part of Himself, here you go. Oh, good catch. That was a Willie Mays over the shoulder right there. That God's here to give you all that He's got. Giving you all He's got. There's not one part of Him that He's not willing to give out. That God didn't get on the cross and halfway say, well, I guess I'll go ahead and do this. But the Bible says that his soul made a delight when he saw the offspring as he's making his offering for sin. Isaiah 53, check it out. I'm not making it up. So it is true that God saw you on the cross. It's all right. Intercept somebody. It's yours too. It's yours too. It's yours too. I wish I had more. Trish, heads up. That God's throwing out loaves. I missed you guys, but I didn't want you to not pay attention to him, or I would have told you guys more. Oh, man. How do you end something like this? I don't even know. I guess, Kim, get at the piano. I don't know what to do now. We've just got to raise our expectations. We've got to raise our expectations. If we don't raise our expectations, how are we ever going to receive anything from God? He's already 
tore down every wall. He's already blood washed everything that would stand in your way from experiencing the presence of God. And yet we're indifferent about the presence of God. It's like God, He's got the loaves for you. He's not mad at you. The anger of God was swallowed up while He was on the cross. The wrath of God was swallowed up while Jesus was on the cross. He's not mad. He's offering grace. He's extending His hand and saying, would you come? He's knocking on a door and He's content to keep knocking even though you refuse to answer. But somehow He doesn't have pride in His heart that says, I need to quit knocking. He just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. Will you open the door and let Him come in? Because He's not going to impose on you. When you let Him in, He brings the food with Him. Praise God. You don't have to cook the meal and say, Jesus, come in and eat. Jesus says, I've got the meal already. I just need to come in. Just need to come in. If you're hungry and you want bread, just stand to your feet.